Truman addresses this. I think other people do as well, where what we center our reality on now is what we perceive to be reality and how we feel. And now we call that virtuous, where it used to be we had a, an overarching authority. Everyone, welcome to Ideology. Uh, Mick Murray here with Dr. Christina Crenshaw. Drew is out of commission for a couple of weeks. He is uh, busy out there in San Francisco. It's his family. They are church planting there. And so I asked Dr. Crenshaw to fill in because I am in over my head uh, this week and next week and uh, figured we would uh, pull in the heavy hitters. So before I intro what we're talking about today, uh, we had you on Christina, back in, was it? I think one of the first episodes we ever did, maybe ten or twelve episodes in, a couple of years ago, and lots transpired for you in the interim. I will do a very poor job of giving you a full intro. I know you have your PhD in something in the humanities and social sciences. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So it's in education. But okay. then I was actually just advising. I, think I did this last time too. Yeah. Well, I was actually advising somebody just today who is looking at doing a PhD in education. And um, what I did with my PhD was you choose a cognate area, and my cognate, which is essentially like a minor, is in English. So twenty one hours in doctoral studies in the English department. So it is sort of, I guess, this hybrid of the social sciences and humanities. And most of my higher ed teaching experience has been in the English department. So both departments, I suppose. Yep. Great. And then you were working at Baylor then. Now you are pursuing a couple of different degrees, right? Well, just catch us up real quick. What do you... <laughs> just one degree. Yeah. But in my fourth, I know my husband's like, what is the return on investment in this? I'm like, oh, crowns in heaven. I don't know. So yeah, yes, I work for Dallas Theological Seminary as a research associate. And what that really entails is we're writing a grant. We're trying to get funding for a Templeton grant. I'm starting a webinar with them on work and faith and then just guest on some of their episodes too. You know, we're doing some different podcasts with their table podcasts. So that that's what I'm doing. I'm also a fellow at Southwestern Seminary. So to be fair, I'm connected to two seminaries, but just one yeah. degree. So yeah, so pursuing a theology degree, really looking at cultural engagement and leadership. The lifelong learner. Yeah. Amazing. So I pulled you in, Christina, because I wanted to do a review of Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I just learned you've had some personal interaction with him, which is fantastic. We've Drew and I have talked about this book a little bit over the past year and a half. I, I read it maybe, I don't know, a year ago, and it was uh, deeply influential for me, but I actually just went back and did a deeper dive into his work, and then from his work have kind of spun off and looking at some different works that he references. Because I found that I really feel like this book is worthy of a review on this podcast at a deeper level because he does such a great job of reverse engineering and analyzing essentially how we got to where we are today. And the goal of this is not to give believers like some ammunition against culture. This is not a polemic against culture and where we're at. The whole purpose of this podcast is to, to equip the believer to be a Christ follower in this cultural moment. And part of that is understanding the water that we're swimming in. And so a lot of these concepts will be very familiar if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, going back all the way to the beginning, uh, first couple of episodes, but doing a little bit of a deeper dive. And for some of you, you might find this deeply you know, informative and life-giving and fun to think about. For others, 
this may not, this may be a little bit more uh, of, a, of a discipline to work through the ideas that got us to where we are today. But as I worked back through it, I was like a kidney candy store. I thought it was mm-hmm. so fascinating to read these different thinkers, you know, for the past three, 400 years and to see just how deeply influenced I have been personally right. by their thought, even though I hadn't previously read necessarily the works of Herbert Marcuse or, mm-hmm. you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but they were so influential over time and it's just become the social imagination, which we'll talk about today, that we are, we're navigating. So um, he talks about uh, his kind of opening line is um, in, in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman. And he also wrote a shorter book. If you if this kind of scratches an itch for, for you, the listener, then you can go pick up either that book or he just uh, released... Uh, what was it called? Uh, Strange New World this year, which is a it's it's a 200 page uh, shorter version of his longer work, and uh, I've just read that one as well. Super helpful. But his opening premise is: How does the phrase "I'm a woman trapped in a man's body"? How is that currently not just coherent, but the the affirmation of that has become a moral imperative uh, at a at a social level? Like it's uh, it's a widespread, commonly held understanding that that's a coherent phrase and a moral imperative. And so he then kind of reverse engineers to get to where we are today. I would add to that, and I'd be curious, Christina, to hear your experience too uh, with this, but some of the deeper needs that I feel like I'm experiencing among believers today when it comes to the intersection with this podcast and the ideas that are that are shaping us, especially on the heels of COVID and all the, the culture wars and the tension in our societies, I think for our older listeners, uh, and I'll, I'll quote uh, Dr. Truman here. He says, the orthodoxy of yesterday is now regarded as the dangerous lunatic fringe. It's not just that it's become marginalized. It has become dangerous. So you might be shaking your head if you're an older listener, kind of looking around and thinking, how did my beliefs, which feel so wholesome, not just become marginalized or sidelined, but now they're regarded as dangerous. They are actually thought of as the very thing that's undermining society, or maybe you're you've, you're a parent who's tried to teach healthy sexuality to your children, but they have absorbed a different ethic on sexuality from surrounding culture, and they're regarding you with uh, antagonism, and you, you're just you're kind of scratching your head as to how did we get here, or you have a child strung, struggling with gender dysphoria. And they're regarding your efforts of well-meaning parenting as repressive or oppressive. Uh, or maybe you've gotten to a point where you're even questioning, are my views even legitimate? You know, the church thought one way on slavery at some point in history and obviously got that wrong. So maybe I've gotten these things on sexuality wrong. And there's just a lot of confusion. Um, would you add anything to that, Christina, before we move on to the younger listeners? Yeah, I think I would just, I mean, I would affirm everything that you have just presented. I think there's so many, you know, different tangentially related conversations we could have on on what you discussed. If if I'm understanding Truman correctly with his argument in this book, he takes it back to is it enlightenment or the romantics even? Mm -hmm. He he takes these thoughts back to discuss how they influence broader culture. And, you know, he wants us to understand, as your podcast does as well, that nothing happens in isolation, that there are so many concentric relationships between what is happening in the public square and thought that 
ends up influencing how we engage theology, how we engage, you know, bioethics, um, that, you know, what, what we're really believing as the larger narrative ends up influencing the way we engage all of these other spheres of influence that they, they aren't, they're not done in isolation, that they're not, they're not engaged in isolation. And um, I, you may be able to parse out Philip Reef's um, argument better than I can, but I remember hearing Carl Truman discuss on a podcast because he was originally approached to write the introduction for this book. And um, it was writing the introduction. I think Rod Dreher connected the two of them, if I'm recalling the podcast correctly. And um, from that comes the rise and fall of the modern self. But I think that Philip Reef in his book talks about sort of this like first world, second world, third world thinking. And it's not in the terms of economics, as we typically think of like third world and impoverished and first world and economically advanced. It's really in this idea of like first world was more of a transcendent thought, like Roman Empire, the gods and goddesses, we everything that we did was based on pleasing these fictitious god and goddesses. It was such a transcendent um, transcendental you know, culture. And then we have the second world that looks at kind of the metaphysical, but also looks at the mechanics of today, like the reality, so to speak. And then we have third world that sort of ignores all things spiritual and only wants to look at the mechanics. And I guess Philip Reef's argument, again, I've only heard the podcast discussion version, is that you really like level two provides some sort of a medium and a balance, but we're not really there anymore in Western culture. And what's even more problematic is as we enter, you know, stage three, where we're ignoring all things that are spiritually related, we don't see ourselves as spiritual beings, like even outside of Christian circles, that used to be a norm, we understood that there was a metaphysical spiritual side of us that just really doesn't get brought into conversation anymore. But even in this third world that we're in now, the the mechanics of it or the you know the biology of it doesn't even make sense anymore so how then did we come to believe that a male could identify as a woman and there isn't sort of an, an argument any kind of a pushback or rebuttal to that we just sort of accept well if that's what makes you happy which is the premise of his book it's the rise and fall of the modern self so if it's if it's an individual need or want or desire that's getting met in you then who am i to challenge that you know in fact we would even sadly say that people who have reached that sort of epiphany within themselves that's so contradictory to the norms, well, they're more virtuous. They've arrived at a level of just self-revelation that the rest of us haven't. And who are we to deny that reality, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I don't know if that if that answers, you know, the, the question. I think we're all still scratching our heads. How did we get here? But I do think it's worth noting that we didn't just wake up one day and get here, right. that there is a historical precedence for this. Yeah, that's that's a great overview. And I think it speaks to some of the dystopian dislocation that a lot of older listeners might feel, because it does in some ways feel like for some of us, we woke up and it was this way all of a sudden and feel disconnected from how did we get here. And it it does, it's so uh, dislocating is a word that uh, Truman used. I think it's a good word. And, And I think for our younger listeners, you're a native to this culture. So I think a lot of times even some of the stuff we'll say in this podcast, you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's just the way thing that, that that's right. That's what, the way things are. But it, like you said, Christina, it hasn't always been that way. And actually, in recent modern history, it hasn't always been that way. We've we've come a long way, even in the last twenty years. But as a believer um, who you know, Gen Z, millennial, younger millennials, you might feel the tensions of being a believer as also a native to this culture that you're talking about, Christina, this third world culture, which we'll come back to, Philip Reef. 
and I'm reading the scriptures, and this seems at such uh, this seems at odds with the culture around me, and this culture around me seems so right. And so, how do I reconcile what I'm reading in the scriptures with what I'm taking in, you know, through every other medium around me? You have experienced the atomization of society, the breakdown of society at a level that's probably unparalleled, at least in in American history. And that has led to rampant anxiety and depression. And so you might also be feeling the effects of that, but uh, unable to put your finger on why, because we're the most materially affluent society in world history still today, even on the heels of COVID, even in the midst of, you know, potential recession, we're still one of the most secure societies that has ever existed. And yet we have this rampant breakdown in in mental health. Um, You probably observe the tensions between you know, your faith and the faith of your parents or your grandparents, especially when it comes to sexual ethics or uh, social justice. And you feel the performative pressures maybe on, you know, through social media of social justice. And so I think this conversation applies to all of us, though, um, depending upon the generation to which we belong, we're going to approach this conversation from different angles. And let me just say, for me, this is a very half-baked uh, conversation. And so we'll t- just kind of stumble through this. This might be two episodes, this might be 10, but I do think it's important to unpack some of these thoughts. A lot of uh, very brilliant people have done a lot of really hard work to try to make this accessible to the general public. And, and just as an aside, before we dive in further, if you want to read more in depth, what Carl Truman does is he takes some very dense writing by people like Charles Taylor or Philip Reeve or Alastair McIntyre. And he tries to make it accessible, which is funny because if you read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it is still very academic. But if, if Rise and Triumph is a 301, then if you want the 401, go you know look up the sources of the cell for a secular age by Charles Taylor or the triumph of the therapeutic by Philip Reeve or After Virtue by Alastair McIntyre. We'll put all those in the show notes. But we're going to try to condense this down into some thoughts that are helpful and accessible uh, for us. So again, this is not meant to be a polemic against culture. But really, I think the fruit of this study for me has been a self-evaluation. How have these thoughts that are endemic to our culture today, how have they affected me as a Christian? And it's been surprising as I've done some reflection just how deeply I have, you know, I've drunk the water, so to speak. I have uh, internalized these ethics and they, they war against, in, in part, and it's not all bad. There's a lot of really good uh, advancements that are happening today in culture. But there's some that is very destructive to the Christian ethic. And so how has this shaped me? And I think that'd be a reflection question for all of us. How have these sh- thoughts shaped us as believers? But then also understanding the world around us. And I think doing this study has given me a lot of empathy to see that people think the way that they do, like you said, Christina, often as a product of many, many forces, and often it's subconscious, and there's not necessarily this very thoughtful, systematic approach to worldview. Uh, and so that's given me empathy to realize people are generally well-meaning in their their approach to culture and life. And so by understanding these forces that are behind the, the thinking, we can have more informed conversations. We can understand the nuance to extremely complex issues that we tend to force into these false dichotomies and oversimplify and have a healthy dialogue that's actually productive and not this binary dialogue that pushes people into camps and creates these separations that are unbridgeable.
and I think on that too, it's important to note that oftentimes when we push ourselves or we're pushed to the fringes, we end up looking just like the other side, so to speak, right? I think it's called the horseshoe effect, that the more you push yourself to, you know, right, far right conservative thinking or far left progressive thinking, the more you actually end up just looking like the very thing you're trying to escape. For example, you know, when we're saying we need to shut that conversation down, that's dangerous, you know, that's happening on the fringes of the far right and the far left. And so I do think it's important to remember that most of the productive common ground discussions are happening somewhere in the middle. Now, the tension is always, particularly for believers, is how do I engage the common ground without compromising, you know, sort of my Christian convictions and Christian ethics or biblical ethics. And 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 it's it's tenuous. It's difficult. But I just want to encourage, I think sometimes the, the human reaction, the, the flesh, so to speak, wants to just swing the pendulum one way or the other. And I, will, and I just don't find much productive conversation or policies or social engagement happening in the fringes, that it's usually found and the people who are saying, let's figure this out together, that that's where the most productive conversation is occurring. Yeah, that's good. And, and to circle back to what you were just talking about with first, second, and third world cultures uh, with Philip Reef, and you talked about how first and second world cultures, they justify their existence based on externals. So there's something transcendent. And if the first world culture... It's maybe you know what we think of like pagan cultures, this you know the gods, and then second world cultures maybe more monotheistic, where it's really codified down into a set of ethical laws. That but but the the unifying factor there is that there's something external that governs the way I think about what it means to be human or ethics or culture and society. But third worlds are justified not on the basis of something transcendent, but on themselves. And that's actually unprecedented in human history. You could maybe make a case that there was a subculture within Greek kind of Hellenistic culture that was trending in that direction. But by and large, there was still a very kind of metaphysical reality to their existence. And really in modern history today, this third world that justifies it, that that has nothing transcendent to anchor itself to is unprecedented. And to the point you're just making, when you have those different worlds existing in one society, you have a cultural battle zone where you have different groups of people who think about the moral structure of the world in different ways, and they are they are incompatible. And this has been a really helpful point for me to to grapple with to see you know just take take abortion with Roe v. Wade and the overturning of that this summer, and and just the debates on either side, and that's extremely nuanced and that's not what we're going into today. But I think the point is. If you have one group of people that's that's basing its entire system of ethics on something transcendent, something external, and another group of people that's basing its system of ethics on on something internal and subjective, how do those two camps, how do they talk about something like abortion? Right. Well, or, you know, to kind of take it off abortion, but I have heard Carl Truman say that he's actually not speaking to or trying to reach kind of like the far left fully drank the Kool-Aid LGBTQ progressives. It's not to say that somebody shouldn't speak to them or that there isn't still room or, you know, he's not writing them off, but he's saying, I find that I don't have enough ideological common ground to even have a conversation with them. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing. And, you know, I'm not that old, you know, I'm 42. Like, I, I don't feel like stuck somewhere in between, you know, Gen X and, and millennials, but I do feel this tension 
like I've never felt before, where it's so difficult to find common reality, right? You know, like what I started encountering in academia when I first started 15 years ago are not the same sort of struggles that we're encountering now. And it is this philosophical difference in how we're seeing the world. And Carl Truman addresses this. I think other people do as well, where what we center our reality on now is what we perceive to be reality and how we feel. And now we call that virtuous, where it used to be, I don't know so much, I, well, yeah, no, with first first world and second world, not as much of third, but we had a, an overarching authority, whether it was the authority of the church or you know the Roman government, but we don't have a reverence or any sort of um, coherent authority now that sort of gives us a shared reality. Now it really is so individualistic that it can be difficult to engage people and finding enough classical liberalism, finding truth kind of engagement to move forward in a way that feels so puzzling. I don't know if that makes me sound like a boomer, but I'm like, kids today. But I do, you know, and I, and I teach, you know, in my defense, rhetoric. And so I'm listening all day, every day to students make arguments. And I, you know, I know that even in the English department of where I used to work, there was a conversation about do we throw out this Aristotle approach to classical argument, argument, which is, you know, ethos, pathos, logos, this is how you build a robust argument. And, and sort of the idea was more of like this, you know, Dorada, Foucault, we talked about, I'm probably betraying his name, Michael Foucault, yeah, Foucault yeah, yeah. approach to reality is more what you deem to be valuable or real, or you get to define semantics or, or that sort of thing. And, I, and I'm just, I'm pausing and I'm thinking as I'm in these faculty meetings, how did we get here? Like right. Aristotle has withstood the test of time. I mean, he's so essential. That both of our kids are in classical schools. Like, how did we get to where we're going to allow our students to just make up, or they could cite themselves as experts and sources. So that is, I don't want to say it's a new phenomenon, but I can say that in my 20 years of education, this feels like uncharted territory. I haven't been here before. It, it feels disorienting and yeah. dislocating, I guess, yeah. to quote Truman. That's a great place, I think, to introduce a few terms here that that uh, Truman breaks down. And again, he's pulling from all these different sources. Because with what you're saying, Christina, the inability to have a dialogue, I think, is characteristic, is emblematic of our society today. And, and that's where I think this type of learning, this type of research is so helpful to begin to, you know, if you have somebody from a second world culture and somebody from a third world culture, to use the Reefian language there, who somebody from the second world culture has their ethics anchored to a metaphysic and somebody from a third world culture, it's, it's internal, it's aesthetic, it's based on, you know, it's preferential taste or whatever. To even identify that difference as a starting point, I think, is a huge boon to be able to eventually have a conversation as opposed to assuming that the rest of the world functions the way that I do, that they think the way that I do. To even understand that there are these different ways of conceptualizing the world is a huge needed starting point. And so to define a couple terms, they talk a lot about the psychological man. We've talked about this in the past in this podcast, but that's this sense that the self coheres around internal realities and not external realities. In the past, Reef talks about the political man, the economic man, the religious man, basically the sense that the self 
got its identity from externals, whether it was the Greek city-state where I belonged to the polis and my political participation gave me my identity. For you know, We're not evaluating right or wrong here, but this is the reality. Or religious man that I, this you know, follower of Confucius or of Jesus, or I was a Jew uh, or a Muslim, and I, my sense of self is bestowed. It is objective. It comes to me that there's somebody else who defines my reality. Or the economic man that I belong to this organization, this company. Uh, my, I find my identity and my ability to provide for my family or my community. And for the first time in human history, at scale, we've shifted into psychological man, where my sense of self doesn't cohere to external realities, but simply to my own internal world. And that has existed for hundreds of years, but not at scale, not as the, the de facto kind of operating system of society. And it, it remains to be seen what the effect of that is going to be long term. Well, and I think we can predict it's not sustainable if we're all our own mini gods. You know, we can't all be the authority here. And so, you know, I I don't know. I don't know that I could, I'm not as versed in sociology to predict where we're going. But I do think that most reasonable pre- people could agree that it's not sustainable. Right. Yeah, and there are mitigating forces against that. You get people like, and we'll get into Marx and different ones who have tried to, even Freud, for how much his theories have been discounted. He recognized, even Nietzsche recognized the insustainability of this just total subjectivity. And so it's interesting to see the different proposals put forth in order to wrap a band around society to keep it from descending into just complete and, and total anarchy. But again, it's based on cultural tastes, and we'll get to that. Expressive individualism is another term that is used a lot in these various works, and that's a focus on the inner psychological life as being decisive for who we think we are. And that arises naturally from psychological man, that the self coheres around internal realities. And it gives a precedence for my psychological sense of self, even over and above biology. And well, this is probably so common to us now that it doesn't even need to be stated. But these are some terms I think that could be helpful. Uh, we talked about, you know, with sexuality, we're no longer talking about practices, but identities, that sexuality has become something that's psychological over and above biological or, or identity over morality. For me to conform to society's expectations is to cause psychological harm now and to live inauthentically because you talk about that radical individualism, Christina. If my sense of self is inwardly directed, then any attempt to conform to some outward expectation that's placed on me by family or by religion is the cause of inauthenticity. And we'll see that it has deep roots in Rousseau and the Romantics a little later. Morality is personal preference based on sentiment or feeling. And, and again, how that arises in society gets extremely complex and nuanced. But at, at its core, it is entirely subjective, which has massive implications for society. And then lastly, social imagination. Uh, and I'll use the word imagination. Drew talks a lot about Charles Taylor and social imaginary. And I just, I like the noun instead of the, what would that be, an adverb? Or, uh, it makes more sense to me. But this is the... These are the the commonly held myths that unite a society, that allow it to function. And the, the key here is that this is subconscious. It's not often explicitly stated. This is just what we come to assume as reality within the social imagination. Uh, we think that we are true individualists. We just talked about expressive individualism, but 
in reality, we are all socially formed. And this common social imagination gives us a sense of identity, gives us a sense of cohesion and belonging, and is critical for a society to be able to function. You know, Drew gave this example. You know, think of the team, the teen who rebels against the norms of his parents only to put on the uniform of the group to which he or she belongs. Right, like, right. like this true radical individualism is tempered by this, this social formation and this deep need to belong. That theory is really often only possessed by a few kind of social elites. Most of us operate from this place of the subconscious, which has been formed by society. So all that is a is something of a, a tee up. And I, as I'm looking, I've got 16 pages of notes here that I've put in front of Christina and I. And again, I wish I had more of this internalized and could condense this down into just a few thoughts here. And this could be many, many episodes. But I think where I would end today is to ask that question we asked at the beginning of this episode is how did we get here? And one of the themes that emerges through the works of these various authors that, that we've been citing is that you have essentially a desire or an idea that crops up in, in typically just a few people initially, but it answers a deep question. And then over time, you have these norming efforts that come around it that usually come in the form of some sort of media. Medium is where we get the idea. It's a, it's a, it's a vehicle of transference until it gets saturated in, uh, into all of society. And of course, there are lots of ideas that crop up all over the place, but never find that norming effort that disseminates them to society. So typically what you have is an idea that, that speaks to a deeper question, and then it finds the technological or the, the media to find its dissemination in culture. And so that will be a thread as we talk about some of these different influential thinkers throughout history is you have this, this desire or idea. And most of these thinkers were relatively unknown in their time period, except among kind of a cadre of social elites. And then over time, those seeds germinate and you have people who catch on to that and norm those thoughts in society. And so maybe we'll end today is to just briefly talk about this broad shift we've been talking about from metaphysical realism to nominalism. And I am not qualified to speak to either of those from a philosophical standpoint, but generally speaking, it's what, Christina, you were talking about right off the bat with this shift from first and second worlds to third world. And that's that throughout human history, every culture that's ever existed has had some sort of belief in the metaphysical, mm -hmm. that there is something beyond us, something beyond the material world that began it, that sustains it, that gives it, that gives it purpose. And, you know, where do you start to kind of track the, the progress away from metaphysical realism? You could go all the way back to Lucretius in, in ancient Greece in his book on the nature of things where he was theorizing the atom and, and was himself at least agnostic, if not one of the early atheists, like true atheists, and was working to undermine this, this need for the metaphysical. Even on through Jesus and Paul and Augustine and the way that they talked about the self and, uh, and prioritizing this sense of self that's distinct from my clan, from my tribe. Of course, though, for them, it was subjected to this higher transcendent reality. 
Right. Well, and I'm going to say, you know, in Augustine's defense, the as he grew in the Lord, you saw more of a self-denial than a self-gratification. And I think that that's been a theme throughout church history that's not as prevalent in culture today. You know, now we're more actual, self-actualized, more virtuous, the more we gratify the things of our flesh. And I, you know, the, the theme of confessions is dying to self to have more of God, um, you know, so much so that he ends up leaving his concubine. I don't fully understand why he never married her, but you know he, you know, had this woman that he was with forever, had a child with her, and the more he grows in his love for the Lord, and the more he he commits himself to devotion in Christ, you see more of a denial of the flesh. And so I think that that's one of the the stark contrasts between what has been historically true for people inside the church, especially, but outside as well, is this this idea of self-denial as a means of virtue instead of self-gratification. Yeah, it's great. And and that comes to a head then when you get to the the Renaissance and the recovery of some of these these early Greek works and, and all the way through Descartes in the early 17th century, is that shift, you know, what you're talking about, Christina, this, this sense of obligation to a higher authority in the case of Augustine or Augustine? What do you say? Well, I found that Catholics usually say Saint Augustine, and that Protestants say Augustine. <laughs> we'll go. We we'll know. go Catholic today. We'll say Augustine. <laughs> this Augustinian accountability to an external deity is uh, discounted by the early 17th century with Descartes. I don't know Descartes' personal beliefs, but this Cartesian doubt that got down to, I think, therefore I am, which was really, I doubt, therefore I am. And this, this inability to be certain about anything outside of just my ability to question my own existence. What a radical dismantling of thousands and thousands of years of belief in the transcendent to all the way to nominalism. And that's just the, this philosophy of our ability to name to what you see in the Garden of Eden, but which is, was again accountable to and subjected to a higher authority. But within the Renaissance, it's, it's now man's ability to name reality, to name ourselves, to give ourselves purpose and function and not to be dependent upon some external source of authenticity or origin or power. Right. And I think, you know, just to, to dovetail off of that, it's fair to say that you can look back throughout scripture, particularly, you know, Genesis, the origin of man, you know, Adam and Eve, and you can see that the Lord does give us free will and autonomy, but it was never meant to be done outside of partnership with him. You know, even I think you guys recently did a, a podcast on the garden and, and the and the value of work. And so we see that even from the very beginning, there is a um, autonomy to us that is very God-given, God-ordained, but that it was never meant to be exerted outside of the will and partnership of God. So... Yeah, and so that's probably a good place to wrap up today. Again, I I didn't know how at the pace that we went today, this could be ten episodes. So you know, we talked to talked a little bit about today of framing some of the the pain points that I think some of us are observing, uh, or the tensions that we feel personally that we're in un- uncharted waters uh, as a culture, as a society. 
that the justification for ourselves rests in ourselves as a culture, which is unprecedented. And what are some of the implications of that? We talked about the inability to have conversation across these different cultural worlds from first and second to third world, and the need for at least understanding that gap, that chasm, as a beginning point to be able to have dialogue. And I would add, you know, uh, Oz Guinness is a, just a favorite kind of thinker and, and communicator of mine. He talks about the triangle of first principles that the founding fathers, and they were creating this experiment, uh, this democratic experiment. They talked about how freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith. You know, they wondered, and then there were other, it requires an educated populace and so on and so forth. But today, having a very fractured, desacralized faith culture, how do you give rise to virtue that sustains freedoms? I think that's a, a relevant, uh, salient conversation to be had at a, at a civic level. But I think for the spiritual person, how have I been influenced by this desacralization of the world? And we'll, we'll, we're going to look at that more in depth in, uh, in episodes to come. Christina, any, any last reflections before we wrap up today? Well, I was just thinking, you know, kind of final words, what would I want to say? And one of the things that I would note if I were listening, that would maybe bring some sort of peace or coherence or just a place to really rest on from this conversation is to know that human nature actually really doesn't change. When we look at the beginning of man until where we are now, the human condition has not really changed. We struggle with the same longings and wants. The human expression is what is vastly different. When we're looking at all of these different um, themes throughout history, what we're really looking at the, is at the different expressions of our human nature. And I think that's where I would then pause and say, is what we're, what we're expressing honoring to the biblical narrative. And, I, and you know, so it's it's not that the human nature has changed so much, that the questions of the heart, the expressions are what is, is changing rather than the human condition. It's not that people are so radically different today than they were yesterday. I think rather it's that our expression of our fallen sin nature is what is taking on a different shape. Um, and that's where we see these different um, philosophical places in history. It's a great parting thought. This turned out to be just an intro to uh, Truman's work, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and uh, have Christina back next week as we continue to kind of track through this progression of ideas that get us to where we're at today. And we'll end with, I'm not sure if it'll be next week, but we'll end with some deeper reflections on what does this mean for us as believers? What does this mean for us as the church? Where do we go from here? How do we continue to be formed into the image of Jesus with all of you know, with this water that we're swimming in that we have all been deeply impacted by even as believers so pointing the finger finger inward to the self and to the church for how do we respond to this before we even look at how do we engage in broader civil discourse so thank you Christina for being here this week and thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on ideology <laughs>